I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. The season is upon us that about half of Long Now's general fund comes from this time of year. So I'm obligated to remind you that you know uh, many of you are members, and thank you. That's about half of our general budget. The other half is really uh, donations that come in in this time of year. So if you're interested in an inter a bottle at the interval, or if you do do end-of-year philanthropy, uh, it is greatly appreciated. Um, I'm sorry, I have a cold, and uh, it affects my voice and probably my brain. Recently, we had um, David Grinspoon here talking about the Anthropocene. Tonight, we're talking about the good Anthropocene, and our speaker will get to the good part. But Anthropocene is still question how you pronounce it, but a question of what its size is. So Grinspoon's thought was. It's a cognitive planet now, and that's a change as profound as any that life has done in the past. And life in the past has separated not just epochs. The talk is of making the Anthropocene an epoch, kind of like the Holocene epoch, which is just 10 or 11,000 years old. But he says, no, I think it's an eon. And the shortest eon, the most recent eon, is the Panerozoic which dates back to the Cambrian explosion, which maybe we're having a sort of a Cambrian explosion-like time now in various respects. And that was 540 million years ago. So that raises the deeper question of if we are getting into an Anthropocene eon, it's really important to probably get the early stages right <laughs> because the leverage is enormous as you go out that kind of distance. And nobody has looked closer at the kind of leverage it takes to get it right than our speaker, Elena Bennett. Thank, thanks, Stuart. So I want you to picture standing here in North America in the Middle Ages, sometime between the 5th and 15th century. Let's pick the year 1,000, 1,000 years ago. This is Cahokia. It's a large Native American city from that time period, probably the largest one. It's just outside what's now St. Louis. If you want to get really into this, you can either look at the image or close your eyes. And I want you to think about living there. What did you spend your time doing? Who did you interact with and how? What did it smell like? What did it look like? What did it feel like to live there? And when you have that in your head, I want you to imagine talking to one of those people that you interacted with over the course of your day and trying to explain the world of today and how we got here. How do you explain the arrival of Europeans, people you probably didn't even know exist, existed? How did you explain the impact that those people had on you, not only in terms of disease and warfare, but also on your values as a culture and your understanding of your values? How do you explain the combustion engine, the automobile, the cities the size of St. Louis, skyscrapers, any of that, the way we live today, running about 
at high speed chasing after pieces of paper money that denote all kinds of power and value. It's really hard to imagine that the Cahokians of a thousand years ago could have told stories that explain the next thousand years. That's what I want to talk about today. So before we head on our journey into the future, though, I want to think a little bit about today and where we are. So let's start in the Anthropocene, a new geologic epoch in which humankind has emerged as a globally significant and potentially intelligent force capable of shaping the face of the planet. So what does it mean to live in the Anthropocene? And, and I find the best way to do that is to think about the past, at least to look back to say, well, what did it mean to live in the Holocene? So this graph shows you the conditions on Earth over the last 100,000 years through a proxy that explains global temperature. So that blue line is the proxy that tells us something about global temperature. It covers 100,000 years. That's about half the span of human existence on the planet, uh, about half the time that we've been here with roughly the same mental and physical cap capabilities that we have today. So what do you see when you look at this? So one thing you should see right away is that temperature bounces around a lot, and that causes crises for people. And every time we have one of these crises, people move. So you see about, uh, about 90,000 years ago or 80,000 years ago, we leave Africa uh, in a temperature crisis. About 60,000 years ago, in another temperature crisis, we colonize Australia. Come to Europe 40,000 years ago in another temperature crisis. All of these movements driven at least by temperature crises. And then, in the last 10,000 years, we get to the Holocene, this remarkably stable period. And about 1,000 years into this period of stability, we develop agriculture. And from agriculture comes literally everything else we know about human history. The Greeks, the Romans, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and, and on and on. So this relatively stable period, 11,700 years long of the Holocene, it's the only state of the planet that we know for certain can support modern human societies of the kind that we have today. And we don't know what happens after that. We know that we're headed out of this, and we know that the stability of the planet is being fundamentally challenged, but we don't know what happens after this. And that brings us, me as a scientist, all of us as citizens, to what I think is a fundamental question. How can we, how should we live in this fundamentally different world that is headed out of the Holocene? And what I'm going to argue for today is that I think we need an entirely new paradigm, an entirely new way of thinking about our place on the Earth that integrates some sort of continued development of human societies and maintenance of the Earth system in some sort of resilient and accommodating state that allows human societies to live. And to develop that paradigm, I'm going to argue that we need visions of what that world is going to look like, what it's going to smell like, what it's going to feel like, and what our role is as people in that world. OK. So first, though, I want to take one more look at what it means to be living in the Anthropocene. And I'm going to do this through the paradigm of this thing called planetary boundaries. And this emerged from the ideas on that last slide, this idea that the planet's stability uh, 
which is important because of its role in, in societal development, uh, is fundamentally under threat. And so to investigate what aspects of stability might be threatened, we examined nine different boundaries or earth systems for which we thought there would be fundamental thresholds. And we picked them because they regulate stability of the Earth's system through some sort of interactions of land, ocean, and atmosphere. So let me walk through what these are, and then I'm gonna walk through a little bit of how, those have, how the state of the planet has changed relative to those through time. So if we start right up at the very top with climate change, we set this boundary to be 400 parts per million of CO2 in, or 300, uh, and 50 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, a boundary which we've now uh, crossed as we head over 400 parts per million uh, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. If we move now clockwise around this to novel entities, this is uh, emissions of toxic compounds like synthetic organic pollutants, radioactive materials, but also things like genetically modified organisms, nanomaterials, microplastics, things that persist in the environment for a very long time. Uh, next, we have stratospheric ozone depletion, um, the ozone layer in the atmosphere that filters out all sorts of harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun, uh, and we uh, have set a limit for that. Atmospheric aerosol loading, which affects cloud formation and weather patterns, including monsoons. Ocean acidification, so about a quarter of all the CO2 that we emit uh, is ultimately gets dissolved in oceans, and there it forms carbonic acid, which uh, decreases the pH of surface water, and that increased acidity changes the uh, available carbonate, which changes uh, the building block that's used by corals and other shell-building animals to build their shells. Uh, biogeochemical flows of nitrogen and phosphorus that are used as agricultural fertilizers. Again, now we reach a boundary that we have crossed with this one. We uh, set this boundary based on keeping freshwater systems intact, uh, and we're currently at double to triple the, the boundaries for those. Freshwater use, um, uh, this is... Uh, set because human pressure is now the driving force in determining function and distribution of global freshwater systems, and the boundary is environmental flows that maintain critical function of those systems. Uh, land system change, which is maintenance of ecosystems uh, that are, are out there, forest, wetlands, other vegetation types that are now being converted to agricultural land. And what I want you to notice primarily about these is of these nine systems that we think are fundamental to maintaining the Earth in a stable state, we have crossed, in yellow and red, four of those nine boundaries right now. So we've crossed the boundary for, uh, for uh, land system change, or biosphere uh, integrity, um, which is about species loss, for biogeochemical flows, uh, and for climate change. And if we walk through how this, uh, how this happens through time um, in this nice set of slides that was actually made by the same people who made that, uh, the long short that we just watched. We can see that when we start in pre-industrial times, we have a lot of question marks about where we're at, uh, but no significantly crossed boundaries. Um, by the 1950s, we're already crossing the boundary for biosphere integrity, which is set at maintaining 90% of the species on Earth. Um, by this point already, we've lost over 80% in some parts of the world. 
We get slight increases in the 1970s uh, in some of those uh, boundaries. We head into the 1990s, we cross significantly more, including the stratospheric ozone depletion, um, which is interesting primarily because when we get to today, we come back off of that one. So that's a very interesting boundary to me because it shows that there are some, at least, that we're able to cross, at least regionally, and then take collective global action to, to address. Okay. So that concludes the depressing part of, <laughs> of what I want to talk about tonight, I hope. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it is... It is depressing, and it is a little bit, uh, a little bit disheartening. Um, and so what do we do about it? Well, this, this might be what we want to do about it, right? You know, sit in the corner of our room, plug into some virtual reality machine, and, and forget all of it. Um, but I'm not here to recommend that we do that tonight. Um, another thing that people sometimes think we should do about it is, well, we can tell really scary stories about collapse and just try to scare the heck out of people. Um, and, and, and maybe that will, will do something. And there's, there's a lot of uh, both scientific and popular visions of collapse and hardship. And, and those, at least to me, really underscore the idea that um, that's a pretty popular approach, actually, to handling our fears about the future. There, there's lots of these um, visions. I, I don't recommend that approach either, um, in, in part because those scary visions create a lot of fear and anxiety, but they don't give us anything. They don't tell us, well, what is it that I should, what is it that I should do about that? They, they do a lot of what not to do. Um, and even on the not to do, it's, it sometimes is a little bit unclear, but, but they don't give us uh, what, what should we do. And, and I think that's the reason why these negative visions haven't always created the kinds of action that we hope that that the fear-mongering is going to create. And to me, that's really important for a couple of reasons. You know, one is our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren uh, are going to live in this world. They are going to live in the Anthropocene. And, and as Stuart was saying, the, the way that we start that is a very powerful force for, for how that's going to look hundreds or thousands of years into the future. And a second reason that it's important is that the visions of the future that we're presented with and that our kids and grandkids are presented with are going to shape our decisions and our actions and the way that we feel about the world. And so to me, doing things that expand our range of positive vision, are it, it's just incredibly important. We don't right now, at least to me, have a clear and viable answer to the question, what do we want the world to be like? in 50 years, or 100 years, or 1,000 years. And so the project that I want to talk to about tonight is all about generating that vision, or generating those visions, because it's probably not one vision of what we want that, that world to look like. Um, and, and that's important, because we can't, we're facing all of these problems that make us want to sit in the corner of our room, but we're not going to solve these problems using the same thinking that got us into these problems. We somehow have to generate some sort of novel uh, visions. It's, this, it's today's thinking that got us into this problem. Let's generate some new thinking to, to try to get us out of it. Okay. 
One more idea that I want to introduce first before I get into what some of those visions of the future might, might look like, and this is subtle, but it's a really important, I think, shift in our thinking. So we used to tell this story that there were these things on the planet called natural ecosystems and that people were basically in the way, destroying things, causing problems, mucking it up. And what I want to do is, is suggest a, a subtle but important shift to a new way of thinking where people are part of the biosphere, where there are not ecosystems and social systems, but social ecological systems of people and nature uh, that are evolving together. And I'll, I'll just point to this, uh, which uh, was uh, done by Georgina Mace, who's a biodiversity scholar, who essentially traced the history of our thinking, uh, I think really nicely to point out why this shift in our thinking is so uh, important. So, uh, what she's saying here is that in the 60s and 70s, uh, the majority of the thinking and especially the framing of conservation was approached as this idea of nature for itself. So if we can just create some protected areas to maintain wilderness and just get out of the way, things are basically going to be okay. And that carried us, that sort of thinking carried us through the 60s and 70s. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, people get a little bit more worried and we start to do this, well, nature despite people. So here now we're worried about extinction, we're worried about population, over-exploitation, and people generally believe that nature is surviving despite us. That shifts again in the early 2000s uh, to nature for people. And here this is the idea that, well, maybe we can encourage more conservation by convincing people, by pointing out all the things that nature does for us. So we prospect for new medicines in the forest. Uh, there's all kinds of ecosystem services that, that we get from nature, like food and fresh water, places to recreate, aesthetic beauty, spiritual well-being. You know, may, maybe if we work on valuing these and really appreciating and understanding those, maybe that'll work. Uh, for conservation. And, and finally, now we're shifting, uh, I think, or need to shift maybe, to this world where we start to think of people and nature together, where we understand this as a world that is full of social ecological systems, where people and nature are intertwined, and where the focus is now uh, on management that is maintaining the resilience and the adaptability of this system. Here's why this framing is important. If we think of ourselves fundamentally as being outside the system, then our goal is just to get out of the way. Um, and, and for one thing, I just don't think that's the right way to think about this problem. And for another thing, we're, we're too big. There's too many of us, and our impact is simply too dramatic to just get out of the way, no matter how much uh, we might want to. We're never going to set aside large enough swaths of the, of the earth for conservation. So, you know, I think of this in some ways, it's like a you broke it, you bought it situation. You know, we, we own it now, we're here, um, and, and we need to do something about that. And, and I would argue that we need a new, humble way of thinking about ourselves and our role where we are part of this system uh, but, but not the only part of this. 
Okay, so this feels hopeless, can feel hopeless. We've crossed four out of nine planetary boundaries. Scientists are screaming at us that we're changing the Earth's system. We're on our way fundamentally to crossing more of those boundaries. We often don't even understand them. We're still arguing about our role on the planet and how to protect parts of it. So a question that follows me around all the time is, how do you move forward? How do you not just sort of stand in one anxious place, unable to take action, but how do we move forward and how do we do it in a way that retains hope, that empowers us to bring about the kind of better world that we want to live in? Here's why that's important to me. Hope is incredibly important. Hope engenders agency and motivation to change, and agency in turn engenders hope because it creates possibility. So for example, it's hope, by creating hope for escaping maybe a poverty-stricken neighborhood, that we encourage students to study in ways that facilitate that escape, or even facilitate someone's dream of not just escaping, but coming back and improving the neighborhood that they came from, which creates more hope, which creates more agency, which creates more hope. Okay, before I move on to hope completely, I'm, gonna, I'm just, I'm just going to turn a little bit back into hopelessness, and then I promise I'll be done. Um, this, is, this is a problem. Um, it, it's only to say this, that I don't want to belittle the hopelessness or pretend like it's not there. There is really good reason for concern. We're seeing unprecedented <laughs> pace of anthropogenic change. We have a lot of concerns. But uh, if we extrapolate current bad trends, we run the risk of being self-fulfilling. People base their actions on what they believe about society and what we expect for the future. So if we only talk about problems, then we only see problems, and then we start to believe that only problems are, lie in our future, and we lose our hope and our agency. So, this is my message for the day. The future doesn't have to be bleak. And in fact, we can point to an emergence of new thinking, innovative ways of living, different ways of connecting people to nature and people to other people that bode really well for the future. As people are becoming aware of threats to society and threats to nature, we see people and individually and groups of people increasingly engaging in strategies that aim to create a more just, a more prosperous, a more ecologically diverse world, what we might call a good Anthropocene. And I'm sure that you all have seen that change around you. This is little things that are done by individuals or by small groups that are aiming to change the world or some part of it. You know, even creation of this, this group here of the long now uh, by itself is an example of a way that we're trying to think about time and change our actions on the planet. And inspirational stories and inspirational visions can be a really key component of that sort of transformation to society, helping to shape the very reality that they forecast. If the stories that we reach for when everything seems to be coming apart are ones that lead on themes of disaster, on fragmentation, on breakdown, on stories that offer no hope of making it over the chasm to safety, then it, it becomes so much more likely that we're gonna find ourselves confronting just such a scenario. But 
If, on the other hand, we have stories, visions, signs, weak signals, so-called pockets of the future in the present that are positive, that are inspiring and purposeful, they have the power to drive us in a different, more hopeful kind of transformation. So in science, we call this kind of storytelling scenario building. So this is the practice of telling several imagined stories about the future and how the future might unfold. And it's been used for a long time in the military community, in the business community, and in international science communities to explore different alternative futures and to help us improve capacity to respond to and even to shape the future. So if I give you an example, one of the early business adapters of scenarios was Shell Oil, and in, they were a very small company in the 1970s, and oil prices were low, and Shell, as a minor player, was busy developing different scenarios as a way of increasing their corporate adaptability, sort of staying on their toes. I kind of imagine lots of worlds so we can be successful no matter what comes about. And they happen to have one scenario in which oil prices rose dramatically. Um, it was controversial, it was even radical, um, but it wasn't unrealistic. And they led, that led the company to change some of their practices to sort of hedge against high oil prices. Uh, and for those of you who were around in the 1970s, you know that, of course, what happens is 1972, OPEC forms and prices rise really rapidly and really dramatically. And Shell was one of the few companies that was able to take advantage of their adaptability to respond really quickly to this new world order. Uh, so that's an example of how this kind of scenario planning might work in a, a business sense. And scenarios have been used in the global scientific community as well. So the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment was the largest ever assessment of the state of the planet by uh, over 1,300 uh, scientists from uh, dozens of different countries uh, all around the world. And as part of their efforts, one of the things that the Millennium Assessment did was develop a set of uh, four different uh, scenarios about the future. So those scenarios looked like this. So there was a scenario called global orchestration in which there was a globally connected society, was focused on global trade, on economic liberalization, uh, reactive to environmental problems but not proactive to them, really a world uh, that's focused on reducing poverty and inequality and investing in public goods as a way to solve problems. There's a world called order from strength, this is a regionalized and fragmented world, very concerned with security and with protection, uh, emphasizing primarily regional markets and paying very little attention to public goods and again, reactive to the environment. We had two more scenarios, one called Adapting Mosaic that featured watershed scale ecosystems that are the focus of most political and economic activity with strong local uh, institutions and ecosystem management with a strongly proactive approach to ecosystems. And another proactive one, Techno Garden, with this globally connected world relying strongly on environmental technology. So these are interesting, but all of these and nearly all of the scenarios that have been developed by the global scientific community um, have these visions that, that I would argue they're interesting, but they're kind of poorly articulated. They end in these kind of utopian fantasies. They often overestimate conventional 
ideas like technology or localism, we overestimate the, the uh, power of those conventional strategies to bring about real change, uh, and they lack a lot of the detail, the surprises, the transformations, the things that are the hallmark of how real history uh, has unfolded. But we can't be too harsh on these. The goal of these scenarios wasn't to tell positive stories, but simply to understand pros and cons of, of the world around them. One outcome for me of, of being involved with, with building these was this realization that none of these solutions works perfectly. So for example, poverty alleviation is great for some things, but causes irreversible environmental problems when it comes too fast. And local solutions are great for local problems, but leave us in the lurch for facing global problems like climate change. And another realization for me was that trying to invent stories about the future from whole cloth, especially starting globally from the solution, wasn't really all that effective. You know, to me, the stories felt a bit shallow. They left out a lot of things that I knew to be important in the world that I was living in. They left out all kinds of cultural diversity, for example. They left out political economy and questions of power. They left out important differences in worldviews and how those might play out uh, in the future. And really importantly, they left out things like trust, hope, fun. Those are things that affect all kinds of the ways that we interact with each other and with, with nature. So in fact, if we think about the future, it's likely to be radically different from today. So think back to that example of Cahokia at the very beginning. When we think a thousand years out into our future, that future is likely to involve fundamental alterations of human environment relationships across a variety of different settings, changes in values, assumptions, cultures, worldviews, even power relations that affect social norms and behavior. But envisioning that future is hard, right? How do you envision different cultures, different worldviews that you've never even thought of uh, before? We haven't done such a good job of that with the global scientific community. We can draw a little bit on this kind of utopian fiction. Um, but the issue with these, at least for scientists like myself, is they don't have to be realistic. They don't have to be scientifically rigorous. They can feature some of the things that we think are important, so trust and fun, resilience, hope. Um, but I am seeking something that is radically novel, like these are, but that have realistic pathways that are scientifically rigorous. So how do we solve this problem? We need positive, inspirational visions that are fundamentally realistic, but radically novel. It seems like an impossible solution or possible problem. So I propose that we start with those emerging innovative ideas, those new ways of living, those transformational projects, those things that we call bright spots or seeds of a good Anthropocene. So instead of envisioning what the future looks like, why not start with the small experiments that we see all the way around, around us now, those experiments that are already in place, and imagine what the world might look like if those were to grow and come to fruition as larger world-shaping ideas. So why do it that way? Well, radical change often comes from these small little seeds or experiments 
which are present for long periods of time before a bigger radical transformation occurs. So as William Gibson said famously, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So what we're trying to do in our project is take a step back, look at these little positive experiments, survey all of those innovations that are happening, and wonder if we foster those, if some of them combine, if they grow into something that's bigger, how does that change the world? What does that world look like? So what is a seed, when I say a seed of a good Anthropocene? So it's a way of thinking, a way of doing. It could be an institution, it could be a technology. We require that they at least partially exist, at least in prototype form. These are things that are currently at the margins. They're not dominant. They have to contribute to a good Anthropocene, at least according to someone. So recognize that even in a room like this, there are many different ideas of what is good in a good Anthropocene. And we have to be able to scale in some way, scale up, scale out, scale in, or somehow lead to a transformation that goes beyond just the experimental uh, stage. So I think of that as a pocket of the better future in the present that we want to grow. And so our aim in this project is to scope out some of those radical changes, and especially some of the ones that go beyond just incremental improvements that are often the focus of today's sustainability dialogue. So we talk about reducing pollution or increasing environmental efficiency of agriculture. And I want to look at something that's a little more radical than those conversations. And my assumption is that many of these seeds already exist in places around the world. We're trying to identify where they exist and understand how they occur, why they occur, and how we might grow them and foster them into something bigger. And by using these same seeds, we've also discovered that we can use these to imagine how they push out into the future and tell better stories to help envision uh, positive realities. And once you start looking, uh, these seeds are everywhere. So I'm going to tell you about a few examples just because I find that that helps to give a sense of what these things are. So the first one I'll start with uh, is a project called Health in Harmony. Uh, this was started by a doctor by the name of Kinari Webb who went to Indonesian Borneo, uh, got really upset about the loss of orangutan habitat there. Go back to that one. Um, and decided to do something about it. And so what Health and Harmony does is they work with local communities. She started simply by spending a year just listening to these communities and saying, okay, we have a problem, we're losing this habitat. What, what is going on here? Why is this happening? So spending your listening, discovered that people were uh, cutting down trees, not because they wanted to, but because someone in their family was getting sick their daughter, their mother, their husband or wife, and they needed income to pay for medical care. And as a doctor, Keenery said, ah, I, I see a solution to this. I will provide free or low-cost health care to any community that commits to reducing deforestation. And so what have they seen? They see now uh, an over 60% decrease in illegal logging and an increase in every human health indicator that they measure in this community after just five years. So the next example I want to talk about uh, is in Copenhagen. So the city of Copenhagen decided a few years ago uh, that they wanted to have organic food offered in every public cafeteria. So every hospital, every school, every government office. 
And as they started looking into how to make their cafeterias organic, they very quickly discovered that they couldn't simply serve the same meals. It was far too expensive to get, or to get organic meat. And so they started changing the menus, and the menus became more vegetarian, the menus became healthier. As the menus became healthier and more vegetarian, they started to realize, oh, you know, we've, we've been cooking all of this food centrally and then just shipping it out to all of these cafeterias where people are basically just reheating it and serving it. Let's train everybody to cook this food in these local cafeterias. And so after just a few years, now they've got healthy, healthier food that's being cooked locally, that's fresher, that tastes better in these cafeterias. And that's led to a whole bunch of other changes that go far beyond just changes in their, in their cafeterias, to changes in uh, waste stream management uh, and other things. And then one last one, I'll talk about Songdo Smart City. This is a newly built smart city from scratch, uh, just outside of Seoul, South Korea. This was built from scratch on about 600 hectares of reclaimed land. It's got uh, over 100 LEED certified green buildings, a pneumatic waste disposal system, bike paths, and computerized tech throughout the entire city uh, to monitor all kinds of things, energy use, traffic flow, you name it, they're monitoring it. Um, and it was built, planned to be a sort of corporate headquarters with all of this efficient infrastructure, easy air access across Asia. Um, but it turns out lots of Korean families are saying, wow, that's, that's a really nice place to live um, and, and, and moving there. And so that to me shows a nice technological example that it's possible to build these really attractive low impact cities that incorporate a lot of built infrastructure uh, that are urban, but that have are, are sort of also incorporating a lot of ecological functioning in a way that's really socially uh, vibrant. So those are three examples, and, and luckily it turns out the world is full of these experiments of people trying things like this uh, all over the world. And so in this uh, project that, that we've uh, been doing, we have collected over 500 of these examples from all around the world through a participatory process where we've reached out to uh, mostly uh, uh, scientists and activists uh, all around the world to get some examples of these. So I'll say just uh, stay tuned for the end of my talk to find out how you can submit your example. Um, so a quick word about the seeds. The game here is pluralism, novelty, and radicalism. So the idea is not to define a single good Anthropocene or to try to get consensus on whether one is possible or what it looks like, but to explore the vastness of this idea space and increase the diversity of conversations that we're having about the good Anthropocene and whether it's possible. So we're really aiming for pluralism, capturing lots of ideas about what makes a good future. That sort of diversity and novelty is often really downplayed in the global scientific models and global scientific scenarios, but we know that diversity is essential for resilient, thriving ecosystems. Uh, and then we want this sort of radicalism. We need new stories, and therefore we need new kinds of seeds. So pluralism, novelty, and radicalism. And when we look at the database that we have uh, 
have developed, we get this real diversity of initiatives that are listed here around this circle in which we've clustered them into different colors or different uh, ideas. And these include different uh, things like novel technologies to uh, reduce ecological footprints. It includes um, uh, efforts to increase sustainability of food production, improve equitable access to resources, to education and power, and novel educational formats that help transform worldviews. And of the ones we've collected so far, we find six different clusters, which are showing to us that a lot of these seeds address a number of critical issues around ideas about uh, green urban transformation, about fairness, about links between uh, food and biodiversity, about urbanism and urban transformation, um, as well as efforts to create change that'll help us remain within planetary boundaries. Okay. So, if we imagine ourselves in this kind of now here, where we've come from the past, and all the evidence is that over history, and especially over the last 50 years, we have caused a lot of environmental de decline in environmental quality, even as human well-being has increased, and on average it has increased over the last 50 years, a sort of paradox of environmental decline and human well-being increase. But if we imagine ourselves at this moment of coming from the past and heading into the future, how do we use the seeds to tell stories of good Anthropocenes rather than stories of dystopian collapse? Because we don't currently have a good model of how to move forward in a way that's good for people and planet, that's good for humans and nature. So this is what we hope for from putting the seeds together. So let me talk about our idea about how these seeds can grow and change. So we think that the seeds can scale in a number of different ways. So for one thing, they can scale up, which means that they might grow in place to be larger and larger. So maybe you know of an example that started in a neighborhood and became something done by a whole city. So for example, in Montreal, where I come from, there was a small pilot project in one neighborhood to collect organic waste and compost it, and that's grown to something now that the city is trying to do across the, the entire island of millions of people. So seeds can also scale out, that is, they can leap to new places by replicating. So for example, transition towns or transition town Totnes, which was a community-led, local-run charity, they were developed to try to strengthen local economy and reduce environmental impact, especially focused on, on peak oil um, and building resilience for a future uh, with cheaper energy and with changing climate. And they developed a range of different projects uh, and that has now become the Transition Network, which is a collection of over a thousand different towns in 40 different countries that are doing something similar. And they can also scale deep. So that is, for example, when a seed creates new types of change. So I'll go again to Montreal, uh, Centre Paul Roulant, which uh, is an award-winning community organization that started as a sort of Meals on Wheels. Um, the organization is now using food to break isolation and build bridges between individuals and especially focusing on intergenerational uh, interaction, and now they focus a number of different agriculture and farming uh, operations that get people of all generations involved in growing food together. And finally, seeds can interact, and in some cases, seeds might enhance 
uh, one another, and in other cases where the visions of the future are fundamentally different, uh, there might be, be uh, negative interactions where one seed might reduce the capability of another to grow and thrive and change. Okay. So using our database, we're now developing a new method for thinking, starting from these seeds, thinking about how they might grow and scale to develop a new kind of scenario, a novel, inductive, story-driven scenario that starts from a handful of bright spots and then imagines how those might face critical futures and critical challenges of the Anthropocene and thrive. So because the bright spots themselves are diverse, we end up with scenarios that more easily represent a diversity of views about what a good Anthropocene might, might look like. And because the bright spots already exist, the scenarios that we're developing, we think, tend to be more realistic in their pathways of how the future uh, comes about. So I'll show you a few pictures from a recent scenario development exercise that we ran uh, in Sweden where we focused on northern European futures. We had participants from all across northern Europe, and we focused on having uh, not only scientists there, but also writers, artists, activists, uh, entrepreneurs who had started seeds, uh, and, a, and a really diverse group of people. So what we did was we started by building these things called future wheels. And what you see here in yellow, each yellow uh, post-it there is a bright spot. Um, in this particular case, I think we have uh, health and harmony is one of the bright spots. We have a technological bright spot of self-driving cars. Uh, and we have a bright spot of um, uh, a sort of organic agriculture. Um, and we asked people to imagine if these bright spots were in their most mature format, so if these bright spots were spread throughout the world, what does the world look like? And so what you see here in blue was our first set of, of uh, ideas about the future, and then that has follow-on effects in red and follow-on effects after that, and then we imagine how those three seeds are interacting. And from that, we develop these images of positive futures. So, but then we need to figure out, well, how do we get there? So this is how we imagine getting there. And we go back and forth through time with these three horizons. So let me explain this just a little bit. So the first horizon here now, which starts up high and goes low, uh, on that y-axis is strategic fit. So the first horizon is stuff that fits really well with the way the world works now. This is the business as usual. But you can see by that decline, it's things that we think are a bad fit with our imagined positive futures. To the contrary, the third horizon is our pockets of the future that are embedded in the present. Those are the emerging patterns that are gonna be the long-term successor to the first horizon. Right now, they're just on the fringes. They're appearing and growing on the fringes of the present system, developing new ways of meeting emergent conditions and possibilities. And so some dominant pattern is gonna emerge, but in the process of developing this, we've got many different future ideas sort of jumbling around in that third horizon. And then the second horizon is this turbulent domain of transition. This is transitions and innovations, things that people are trying out in response to the changing landscape between the first and third horizons. And the second horizon turns out to be really important 
because that provides the disruptions that are needed for the more radical third horizon things to emerge. Uh, and for some of the, the first horizon systems to, to disappear. And so what we do is take some of our ideas about how the future might play out and we work forwards and backwards along this first horizon, third horizon, until we're able to develop a storyline that gets us from today, from the futures that we have right now, to our vision of how the future might work with those future wheels starting from our, from our bright spots. And what we hope is that we get uh, realistic pathways to radical futures. Okay, so in this particular instance in, in Northern uh, Europe, we developed four different stories that featured things like rewilding, the radical listening that came from health and harmony, value shifts, transparent local governance, more time to spend with family, more time to engage in civic governance, more connection between people and nature, decentralization of power, and decline of, in the power of corporations in particular. Because we have these diverse bright spots, we get this sort of diverse view of what uh, a good Anthropocene uh, might look like. And because we work through this first horizon, third horizon framework to trace what new things we need to get to that world and what old things need to go away, it really helps you to see the pathways. Um, for, so for example, in these scenarios, the use of technology to free up time and resources. And in one of the scenarios, for example, uh, that started with self-driving cars, that became an important vehicle that freed up people's time. And that time, along with value shifts, led to changes in the way that people interacted with each other, which led to changes in governance, which led to what we called radical listening councils, which were basically local government's way of organizing themselves. Once we had that uh, sort of local uh, uh, radical listening council, we then realized, well, we, need, we needed the well, which was the World Environmental Learning Library, which was a way that all of these different local communities could connect to one another and share information about how they were solving problems so that communities didn't become uh, isolated and small in their thinking, but rather became uh, broad and expansive in their, in their thinking. And that's just one of the scenarios. Other scenarios that we uh, developed featured innovative finance, novel economic systems, massive rewilding projects, or other uh, indigenous community-led transformation. We got this really broad variety of different, uh, of different scenarios. And we're trying out other methods um, as well. So we have some uh, old-style Dungeons and Dragons kinds of games with dice uh, that we're using with the bright spots to help people sort of mash different bright spots together and ask what worlds uh, emerge. We've got some games that we're playing with, uh, with virtual reality. Um, we have a series of different board games that we're playing uh, in locations all around the world. Um, and even an online uh, SimCity style uh, game that was an audience award nominee called uh, uh, Anthrokratos, um, which was about playing an online sort of SimCity game to, to imagine the future. And we've done these in a, in a variety of ways in a variety of different places around the world. We've done them in, in Asia, Africa, in Europe. Uh, we have plans to expand now to North and South America. And now that we're 
starting to build this set of scenarios, we can compare them so we can learn what is the same and what's different in the ways that people think about a good Anthropocene and explore a variety of different pathways to get to some of these uh, Anthropocenes. So beyond telling these stories, one other thing that we're doing with, uh, with this database of 500 seeds is thinking about change. So in other words, what makes the seeds scale? Some of them scale. Some of them scale up, they scale out, they scale deep. Some of them thrive. Some of them emerge, they seem like great ideas, and then they fade and go away. And with our database of 500 of them, we can explore what is it about local political systems or local governance or institutions that m helps some of these thrive while others go away? What is it about leadership? What is it about the ideas or how those ideas work with or against the kinds of problems that, are, that people are facing that either fuel articulation of new ideas and change people's experience and consolidate into a new regime or that leads some to be squeezed out by other macro structures and, and go away? So let me just end by coming back to this idea of living in the Anthropocene, of exiting the Holocene and living in this new, uh, new world. And let me argue once again that in this new world, we need a new way of living on a planet. We need a way of living on the planet that's good for nature and people together. And that's a subtle but fundamentally really important shift in the way that we look at this problem. And I hope that I've convinced you tonight that developing truly innovative and inspiring scenarios about how that might happen, how we might get to a world that is good for people and nature, but scenarios that remain grounded in reality, that that's a critical challenge for us in the global community. And we're gonna need radically new visions about the human place. But luckily there are people already working on this all around us right now in ways big and small they are creating seeds that we think can grow into a good Anthropocene. So I wanna thank people who have uh, come to scenario development workshops like this one, um, especially uh, thank uh, my fellow leaders of this uh, project who come from all around the world and have been developing this idea, and invite you to contribute uh, your seed at our website so that we can change direction, so that we don't end up where we're heading. Thanks. I take it you're still collecting seeds, judging by that last thing. I, I'll never stop collecting seeds. <laughs> so what are some of the most recent that kind of got your, uh, got your interest? Well, I'm, I'm really interested in that um, that health and harmony one really stands out to me as a, as a systems scientist because what I like about that one is, and what I think is so powerful about it is, um, at some point of time, people living in that forest would have had, there would have been a connection between human health and forest health in a, in a world where that system was just local. People would have been their health depended on the health of the forest around them. And then at some point with global trade, that connection gets, gets broken 
and they're more dependent on being able to buy healthcare from somewhere else. And what I like about what Health and Harmony did was they just sort of came in and drew that feedback back in and said, nope, you want to have healthy people? You got to keep a healthy forest. And they just put that feedback back in to create a better system. And, and a lot of the ones, when I look at them, a lot of the ones that are hugely successful feature that kind of uh, thinking about system dynamics in that Is way. Is that one scaling yet? They're right now looking for new places to work, and they're thinking more about scaling the same idea to other uh, to other places. And it, it's in Indonesia or where? They're in in, in Indonesia, yeah, mm -hmm. in Borneo. Okay, that's one. What else? Um, so other ones that I like uh, in particular are any ones, um, and there's a lot of them. So I, I won't name names that are that have started by thinking that they were going to connect people to nature. And a lot of those are um, gardening projects or um, farming or um, restoration projects. And, and often what I'll hear these groups say is, well, I thought that what I was doing was, was helping people connect to nature that's outside their doorway. But, but what it turned out that I did was I connected people to other people. And, and now those people, now that they're connected, they're doing other things. They're getting politically active or they're you know, changing other things. And so it's again an example of how, how creating one connection creates possibility for scaling and lots of other connections. So you mentioned the well, which is a nice name. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> Not my idea. <laughs> the idea is to have these seeds basically communicating with one another. Is that already yeah. happening through you guys or anyway, or how does that work? Only in the sense, so, so we've created some situations where a few of the seeds can come together. So when we run the, the on-the-ground scenario development workshops, like the ones that I talked about in Northern Europe, where we do this first horizon, second horizon, third horizon, we always bring... Uh, a number of, of seed entrepreneurs to those workshops to represent their seeds. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a big draw for those folks is often connecting with some of the other seeds so that mm -hmm. they can say, hey, how did you solve this problem? Or how do you deal with, you know, when the local government's getting in your way? But those so far have been pretty small. And what we'd love to do is have, you know, a seed, could we have a confluence mm -hmm. where we can create a gathering of hundreds or even thousands of these seed entrepreneurs? Because they, they have so many ideas about how to solve problems, and often they're facing the same kinds of problems, so that sort of idea sharing is important. Some of sort of regional, everybody in South Asia that's doing stuff, mm -hmm. and some of them kind of uh, uh, similar in kind, so they're actually all doing stuff with cities or something like that. Right. Both kinds. And then uh, once every some number of years, the big convocation where they all come together and go crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or across different regions, you know, mm -hmm. all the ones that are thinking about technology, but from all different parts of the world. You can imagine lots of ways of doing it. Question from Kevin Kelly. Have you back-checked your method by surveying seeds 25 or 50 years ago? And how prophetic were the seeds of 25 or 50 years? I was around for some of those seeds. Yeah, so we, so we have not done that. And one of the things that I, I think we haven't yet done a very good job of, even within our database, is to look at, is even to collect seeds that haven't worked. Mm -hmm. Because you can learn yes, a lot please. from the ones that, ha that haven't worked, but people don't like to talk about those mm -hmm. so much. They want to talk about their stuff that has worked. So that is one of our next steps is to think about. We've had a few that have pinched out. We've had a few that haven't worked for sure. And, and we've had a few because of the way that we have 
um, collected them. You know, we've had a few that, that somebody says, you know, this is a great new idea, and then somebody else says, ah, that's actually maybe a land grab by a foreign interest. Mm -hmm. So we've had some that, you know, are they seeds, are they not seeds? Mm -hmm. um, not entirely clear. Well, I was around for the communes, which were sure they were all seeds of a much better civilization, and almost all of them pinched out for kind of uh, soap operatic reasons, by and large. Uh, yep. The one, some of the ones that that persisted for a while actually were based around uh, some kind of religious practice. Uh, does any of that play into the ones you're looking at? I haven't looked very closely at uh, the religion, and it's it it doesn't stand out for me as being prominent in the ones that we've collected so far. And you, you notice when you look at the map, we also haven't got a great geographic spread in part because of how we've we've built them. So, you know, Australia appears empty of, of mm -hmm. bright spots. It's not actually empty, it's just that we haven't gotten a good job of getting there yet. Well, I was just sort of riffing on a question by Austin Ehrensberg who says, what role does religion play in storytelling mm. about environmental stewardship? And, um, you know, the Bible has some stuff about dominion. That's tricky, but it, hey, we got dominion. Guess what? Played out. Uh, and some has some stuff about stewardship um, and creation and protecting creation and things like that. Um, on the other hand, Christians have not been always that great about taking care of nature. Um, what do you got? Is there anything in there? I mean, animism, should we you know, start? Uh, there's been a lot of tree worship going on. Is that the right thing to do? Yeah, I'm trying to think if we have any seeds that are, that, that uh, I, I don't think we have any that emerge from that strong religious um, feeling. And certainly there's been a lot of arguing back and forth over whether that, that stewardship has been mm -hmm. a positive or not so positive role in the way we see our place on the planet. So the, um, fun to see Chick Kallenbach's Ecotopia up there. And a lot of this really sounds ecotopian to me, and it sounds kind of left liberal, a lot of it. So tell me about some seeds that make liberals squirm, but by God, they're onto something. Yeah, so we, we have had a hard time getting a lot of seeds that make liberals. There are some, and I, and I think, you know, to some extent, some of the technology and some of the sort of top-down control, and there are some of those, you know, tend to make us kind of, you know. Say more. What's a what's a um, technology one that makes you squirm, but they might be onto something. Let's see a technology one that makes me squirm. So there are a fair number that are sort of, you know, GMO oriented mm -hmm. or uh, <laughs> you know, meat, you know, invented meat development that you know. I'm not so sure, but I but I like to play those out because it forces me to think about, you know, what is my place and what do I think and and how do these play out? I'm in in the one that I that I talked about with well with these mm -hmm. self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was at first like eh, self-driving cars. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. like that so much. But you built the whole um, thing around that. But we scene. built the whole thing, and and it turned out, you know, it was it it played an important role in how that story played out because it changed the way people were interacting with each other. It changed the way people got from place to place, mm -hmm. and it changed the way people got things from place to place. So the self-driving cars meant that people could have more sharing economy because they could, 
just put stuff in the car and it could move from one party to the next party so every community could have their party supplies instead of every person having party supplies. And that, that sort of fundamentally changed everything. And it wasn't, you know, when people first said self-driving cars to me, I just thought, oh, more cars, you know. But it, but it turned out it wasn't, it didn't work like that. So it was a surprising one to me. Self-driving cars want to engage agriculture. Because mm -hmm. one of the people you quote is Earl Ellis, who we both know. Mm -hmm. And Earl's pretty strong on that uh, drastically productive, efficient agriculture, precision agriculture with you know, tractors that know what they're doing and they're sensing the soil and putting in just the right amount of fertilizer, just the amount of water, seeds that are separated with just the amount of distance, all this kind of stuff, which is basically robots. Uh, instead of uh, loving the land, soulful people, it's, it's uh, robots who actually you can train them to act soulful, but you know, they're robots. Mm -hmm. uh, is that okay? <laughs> um, so besides doing this work, my, my other hat is I work on agricultural systems. Mm. And my experience there is that efficiency has not been good for us. Um, efficiency has led us down a road with agriculture where we, we basically engineer systems to be tighter and tighter and more and more controlled, which makes them much less resilient and adaptable. So we get systems that just don't have the kind of flex that I think we're going to need as we head out of the Holocene and into the Anthropocene. We're going to need systems that can change and adapt. And we, we have fundamentally built an agriculture that is not very adaptable. It depends on subsidies and efficiency and the sort of more crop per drop mentality. And that, that has not been very good for us. Okay. Mary Mangan, uh, online asks, if somebody in Cahokia was asked to do the experiment on visionary uh, was around some promising seeds, what would have been, that have been for them and how did it play out? Cahokia faded. Uh, Cahokia faded for, mm. for, you know, a lot of unknown reasons, but... I know, but, isn't that weird? It's still um, unknown. Get you know, on it, researchers. We need to know, know what the hell happened. It's right there. It's, yeah. it's pretty cool. If you haven't been, I highly recommend going. It might have been religion that I, often takes down. <laughs> Back to religion. Um, you, you know, what's hard for me to picture is the Cahokians predicting, or at least putting into their scenarios, the arrival of Europeans, which undoubtedly must have played a major role if Cahokia was still around. Um, and I, I just can't imagine how you come up with that in a scenario which makes me think that even the stories that we tell now, we are gonna, fundamentally, we're gonna miss things. Mm -hmm. but, but my hope is that, you know, as with the global scenario development community, it, it's a way of staying on your feet. If you, if you aren't picturing there's only one way the future is gonna unfold, but you think, oh, there's this range of possibilities, even if you're wrong, you're more likely to adapt more quickly because you've already thought about multiple possibilities. So, you know, even if we don't catch all of the things that are gonna happen or predict it exactly right, I think that we'll create hope and we'll create a sort of flexibility and adaptability that, that I think is gonna be critical. One of your uh, charts that 
I loved that you had at the beginning of sort of the sequence of how we're thinking about nature the last four or five decades. I could have used in the talk I gave last week. Um, but it's interesting because you show the progression of four stages, sort of one per decade, and right now we're at people and nature. Uh, but that rate of change suggests that you know, last about 10 years and we got a whole you know, 10,000 to 450 million years to go yet. Uh, do you think that's the last shift or, or is it trending somewhere? I, I sure hope it's the last shift. Um, but that's what the previous group hoped too. Probably, right? <laughs> Did they? I wonder if the people who were thinking about nature for people. Yeah, you know, they may, thought that maybe ecosystem they thought that was services, the last. you know, we do the math, we do the economics in, uh, in Costa Rica and places like that. Uh, you just get the water and the, all the things that you want to have sort of covered and you get the government to go along with accounting for it in an economic way, that all would be well. What happened? Well, it doesn't work so nicely like that. Oops. Okay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it does, but it, but, it, but it doesn't always. And I think, you know, there's a lot of arguments for, for needing something that is more grounded. I, mean, I think sometimes it, 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 it does help to think about benefits that we're getting from, from nature. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly helps us to think about things in a more multifaceted way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know where we're going. People and nature to Well, you, you know, tell the me. Breakthrough Institute over in Berkeley likes to talk about decoupling, and Earl Ellis is in the thick of that. Basically, the, the less we do basically any kind of exploitation of nature, the better. And that's a bit of a separation as opposed to a complete immersion. Um, are there some cases of seeds that have that quality? Yeah, there are some that have that quality. It's hard for me to imagine that we can decouple in that, that way. I just think there's, there's just too many of us, let's say, in the, the world of half Earth. You know, who's mm -hmm. half? It's not going to be the rich white people half mm -hmm. that gets given away. So it's, it's hard for me to imagine how that plays out in a way that goes to a positive, to a truly positive Anthropocene. So one of the diagrams I really loved was the one you started with, basically, the, the Holocene temperature change, uh, mm -hmm. just basically minute temperature changes versus the previous many tens of thousands of years where it was all over the place. Um, and humanity and agriculture and civilization has basically happened in that nice weather period. Um, you think that's over now and we are going to be looking at those kinds of temperature crises indefinitely? The Storms of My Grandchildren, I think, is the title of that. <laughs> you know. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember so clearly the first time I ever saw that graph, I just about fell out of my chair because mm -hmm. it, it hadn't occurred to me that, oh, right, everything we know happens in that period of stability. Um, so what, what I didn't show in that graph is at the end, um, if, if you sort of zoom in on that end, it, it goes like this. So mm -hmm. it, it doesn't go back to, to up and down. It just goes up. So I don't know whether we're headed to back to instability or we're just headed up into the stratosphere with that. But, but we're headed out of that stability, that's for sure. 
Um, I suspect you have an opinion about geoengineering. <laughs> a, a variable changing Say opinion. Um, I, my, my, my gut instinct is, is danger lies that, that mm -hmm. direction, and so proceed with extreme caution. Mm -hmm. um, but I, mm -hmm. there are some examples of like, oh, okay, well, what, it, what, is, what does that look like at smaller scales? Mm -hmm. I'm a little more comfortable when, it's, when it looks like experiments mm -hmm. and when it comes with a lot of monitoring to mm -hmm. understand, you know, what are we doing? What's the effect of this? And then really thinking about time lags and delays because we're not, you know, mm. the mm. effects aren't always immediately apparent. And so we don't want to miss something because we've measured, you know, right afterwards or right nearby. We want to really monitor broadly. Well, it sounds like monitoring and, and in the smart city that you were pointing out had all kinds of sensors all over the city watching everything all the time. And it looks like one of the things that's coming on is a whole lot more capability of sensing what's going on, mm -hmm. not only with us, but what's going on in nature. Mm -hmm. And I take it you're all for that. Yes, if we're thinking smartly about it, mm -hmm. right? So it's one thing to monitor and just collect all that data and put it in a dusty binder mm -hmm. somewhere, and it's another thing to take that information and really think about what it's telling us and think about time lag. So, you know, we, we've been talking about adaptive management of ecosystems for a long time now, where we basically, you know, treat management like experiments, try something and see what happens, try something and see what happens. Mm -hmm. To me, that monitoring data is, is important, but only if we're using it to see what the effects are of what we're doing and then adjusting based on that. Otherwise, why bother? Should that data be publicly available? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, For lots of people to do seed-like things with it. Join. I mean, I think it depends what sort of data. If you're talking about someone's personal data about where they're going, then... The animals and the trees you know, and the uh, uh, weather and detail and stuff like that. Is I mean, that I okay? think a lot of it we can only win by making information available for people to... I just with. got a flash of people freaking out about collars on animals that they were invading their privacy. Um, and in a sense, we are, but if one, if they don't mind, and two, if it helps us protect their, the, the habitat that they, it turns out they need, then that's probably not a bad thing. Right? Yeah, I mean, it depends a lot what, what data we're collecting and what we're doing with it, and, and at what scale, you know, are you making every individual piece available? Are you sort of collecting and anonymizing things? I mean, you don't want, for example, information available on where uh, the last rhinoceroses are so that the poachers Correct. can go, you know, yeah. hey, I got it, they're right there on the GPS, I just yeah. gotta get there. Good example. You know, there's some, there's some danger for sure in that too. Fair point. Alyssa asks, what seed do you feel is essential to a good Anthropocene that you haven't been able to find yet, but you're looking hard? <laughs> huh. Um, you know, just this, the, the talk about monitoring, I, I haven't seen in the seeds, at least not that I can think of, it's hard for me to have all 500 of them on recall, but I haven't seen ones that are focused on that kind of data monitoring and, mm. um, and understanding. And, and that seems like that would be 
critical, because at least in my vision of this positive future, mm -hmm. there is adapting and flexibility and movement all the time and changing. Um, and that would require there to be a seed out there that is doing that kind of monitoring and, mm -hmm. and then suggesting what sort of adaptation we need. How do we need to move and flex? Mm -hmm. I don't think that we have one that looks like that. Well, Planet Labs here in town is doing you know, sort of daily yeah. Earth uh, yeah. in considerable detail. Actually, they're a great but. example. And this is a, um, a frame of reference that you're developing that invites the kind of sort of ground-based, experience-based scenario planning that you're doing. And is that really moving in the direction of, uh, of storytelling, of, of people engaging it at the story level? Well, Maybe I'm not sure um, I understand. Is there a book coming out of this for sure? <laughs> <laughs> huh. <laughs> um, not at the moment. Can people look somewhere and see the 500 and see what they are? Yeah, so people can can see on our website, you can see we're, we we don't have all 500 up because we don't have the database up, <coughs> but we, we post seeds mm -hmm. and stories about them that are a little bit longer form. So you get more than just the information that's in the database. So you can look at those. Mm -hmm. Eventually you can look at the 500. What we don't have collected in any sort of way that, that people could access it yet is all the different stories mm. that are coming out. So we now have dozens of different stories because we run these workshops in different parts of the world. And, and that I think would be quite interesting for purposes of comparison and, and mm. you know, looking at how those are different and yeah, the same. Inspiration. What's, uh, what's the website? Where do they uh, go? It's goodanthropocenes with an S dot net. Goodanthropocenes. Yep. Yeah, because there's plurality. That involves other planets, right? <laughs> Not just many stories. Um, I don't like to think that, that there's one vision of how this is going to unfold, and we're not trying to predict the one positive pathway. I think there's a lot of positive pathways so out there to choose from. For a radical seed maker, I can imagine them scrolling through the not quite 500 yet seeds that they can examine. And if they're going to be radical, they'll look, okay, that's been tried, that's been tried, that's been tried, that's been tried. And then they can imagine in themselves, but nobody's tried X mm -hmm. and be motivated to go get uh, weird. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, you could do that. I think a lot of times, a lot of the ones that I see are people notice, somebody notices a problem or somebody notices a, a sort of space that's not occupied, um, which can be a, a physical space, you know, mm. a, a schoolyard or a, or a you know, roadside between the, the sidewalk and the road that's not being used. And says, hmm, I, I could do something with that space. Or, or a, a virtual space that, that somebody's not occupying in, that in their community of connecting one thing to another thing. And, and it seems like a lot of them emerge from from that. From 500 on to 5,000 on to a great many good Anthropocenes. Thank yeah. you, Elena, for doing this. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. 
You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining LongNow as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.